I remember vividly when I was serving as a chaplain in a hospital and I came to the door and the physician was there and we knew each other, so it wasn't like I was a stranger to him, but he stopped me before I came to the patient's bed and said, we don't need you yet. And I think that that assumption that these are the folks who come with the dark hood and the sickle, that is such a slice of what chaplains do in terms of the overall trajectory of their daily lives. Welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. You just heard from Trace Hawthorne. He's a co-founder of the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab and the former executive director of the Association for Clinical and Pastoral Education. This week, we're revisiting the first episode in our series exploring what chaplaincy looks like today. Now, although the role of chaplains in our society is growing in new and interesting ways, in our popular culture, we have some pretty inaccurate ideas floating around about what a chaplain actually does. I need a priest, a pastor, anybody. I, I need to talk to God. And then they cut back to all the other characters where it's assumed that that person goes and does some sort of mystical, holy rite with the dead. But as Haythorne points out, today's chaplains work in all kinds of environments, and they work with an increasingly non-religious population. The chaplain is a kind of spiritual generalist, if you will, helping you draw upon the deep resources that are a part of you, rather than bringing a particular prescription for you within a moment like that. In this seven-part series that is available online at interfaithradio.org, we hear from chaplains of different traditions and beliefs who work to walk with and guide people, often through some of life's most memorable and fragile moments. The series is produced by Ruth Martin, who traveled around the country to meet and see up close what today's chaplains are doing. In this first episode, Ruth takes us to a long-term chronic care facility for senior citizens. At Hebrew Senior Life in Boston, there's a wing where you can get borscht in the cafeteria and where Russian sitcoms play on TV. The staff call it Little Russia. I'm Aksana Chapman. I'm the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel of Chelsea, and also I do chaplaincy for Hebrew Senior Life in Roslindale. Today, Oksana is checking in on Arkady Glinets and his wife, Rosa. Rosa, you look beautiful. They're Holocaust survivors. They met several years after the war in a train. He remembers it like yesterday. She's a beautiful girl. <laughs> With long hair. And she decided to brush her hair, and the whole place was just looking at her. <laughs> the hairbrushing, it caused a big commotion. And he just died. <laughs> she was young and beautiful, and many young men desired her. He turned out to be very determined. At that, Arkady, the determined suitor, punches the air. 
Their marriage certificate hangs on the wall above a delicate blue and gold china set. It dates back to 1955. Arkady and Rosa were married before a Soviet bureaucrat, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted to get married before their god. Under a hupa. During Soviet regime, it was not allowed not only to have the hupa, even to go into synagogue. The Soviet Union saw religion as a competing power. In fact, it was the first state ever to make eliminating religion an official objective. Religious organizations were not exactly outlawed, but they were driven underground. The Communist Party confiscated churches and ridiculed the faithful. And in the 1920s and 30s, hundreds of priests and believers were killed. The Russian Orthodox Church was eventually grudgingly allowed to survive. Meanwhile, attacks on Judaism were constant. Synagogues were largely shuttered. Arkady says, if you wanted to be someone, you had to join the Communist Party. So he did. You couldn't be Jewish as well. And now he's 87 years old. Religion can be like a roadmap. For believers, spirituality offers landmarks to navigate by. Marriage vows, cleansing rituals, last rites. So what if that map has been hidden away? As you age, how do you know where you're supposed to end up? Good morning, ladies. Happy birthday. That's where Oksana comes in. She's a rabbi, a cantor, and a chaplain. And what we do here is mitzvah upon mitzvah upon mitzvah. The great thing or the kind thing that we are obligated to do. The typical resident of Little Russia is about 90 years old, speaks little English, and was brought to the United States by a son or daughter or by a grandchild. Many of them have also learned to keep their religion a secret. My parents, they have read a little Torah and uh, in, in Hebrew. That's Victoria Packer. And, uh, they, uh, I, know, I knew where it was, this uh, Torah. Where they kept it? Uh, where they kept it. They kept it in the house. She gestures as if she's reaching for a book in the back of a closet. On the shelf, yes. Yes, but I, uh, I told, told nobody about it. Oksana is a generation younger than Victoria. But she gets it. She, too, grew up under communist rule in St. Petersburg. In fact, she got an A in atheism. A in atheism. (laughs) You had to study atheism? (laughs) Yes, yes. Growing up? Absolutely. What what did you learn in atheism? Uh, It's a science to prove that God doesn't exist. For example, we went to space and we didn't find God there. Oksana steps into the sanctuary and warms up for a memorial service she's about to lead. Forcing Judaism underground in those atheist classes, they worked. A generation later, when Oksana fled Russia as a political refugee and landed in Boston, she was an atheist. I studied music. That was the only language I spoke at the time. I didn't speak a word of English, Hebrew. I did not know anything about Jewish religion. I did not know who Moses was. A nearby temple sponsored her family as part of a resettlement program. 
And so we came to this temple for the first time because we felt obligated to go and say thank you. So we went there and I fell in love with the whole atmosphere, with people, with music. And I called my mother. I called her and I said, I want to be, I decided to become a cantor. She said, a cantor, this is something religious. And then she added, oh, by the way, your great-grandfather was a rabbi. So she's able to bring that Jewishness and through it, possibly at times in an unarticulated way, allow that to be a place for people to re-engage spiritually. That's Rabbi Sarah Pasha Orlo. She's the director of spiritual care at Hebrew Senior Life. Before Oksana came, she had to call on an interpreter to minister to Russian-speaking residents here. They talked about hidden matzah baking parties, and they talked about going out to frozen lakes where before they got married, they would do a ritual bathing, and there was no place to do that bathing. So some of these women before marriage were literally dunked into icy, you know, lakes in Siberia. Pasha Orlo says the idea of being spiritually well after spending so long in an anti-religious, anti-Jewish environment, it's a hard nut to crack. In fact, she and Oksana can't even find a word for chaplain in Russian. On the other hand, chaplains are trained to meet people wherever they are on their spiritual path, even if that means wandering away from religion altogether. Maybe the signposts are not baptisms and bat mitzvahs. Maybe it's a painting, a poem, a story you heard in a bar. Pasha Orlo says you'd be surprised at how spiritually freeing it can be to age. A certain openness. We have a stereotype that um, our elders sort of are judgmental and narrow in their thinking. And actually, I feel like as people climb the mountain, their view gets bigger. And they can see further and they can stop and appreciate that view. Later in the day, Aksana gives a lecture about Purim in Russian. One woman clutches a book of Renoir paintings to her chest. Nearby, a couple seem to be sharing a pair of pajamas. She wears the top, he wears the bottoms. At the back of the room is a petite woman in a wheelchair, Yelena Kopilova. It's the story of her family, how they lived on a farm. And she remembers how they walked far away to reach the synagogue. And the fact that I'm talking about the history and the Jewish people and celebrations brings back the memories of that time. For many residents here, Judaism is linked to memories from childhood and adolescence, the kinds of early, hardwired memories that fade more slowly if patients are experiencing dementia. In cases like that, Oksana says song is like her religious power tool. It knocks down the brick walls of memory loss and brings them back. She remembers one resident in particular. She was nonverbal for already quite some time, three or four months. We had, had never heard her speak or communicate, nothing. And then I started singing Yeah, very well-known Yiddish song. And she started singing along. That was amazing. And it's the most beautiful thing ever. 
Not all the residents of Little Russia want to rekindle their faith, even as death draws near. And for Oksana, that's fine. Back in his room, Arkady shows me black and white pictures on the wall. There's a portrait of Rosa when they were a newly married couple. How long have you been married? 62 years. And then he shows me another marriage certificate, a second one. A few months ago, 62 years after they first tied the knot, he and Rosa were married again, not under Soviet stigmatization, but under a hupa. 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 Just ktuba. Aksana married them. Arkady Ganets has found his way home. After the break, producer Ruth Martin introduces us to two women who help people find meaning at the end of their life. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. (laughs) 